Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel, and we're turning to chapter 1. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 254. Second Samuel chapter 1, and beginning our reading at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner. An Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We have been studying uh, the book of Samuel in recent months. And in our study of Samuel, we have really been looking at the transition in the people of God to an establishment of a kingdom. It is telling us the story of the movement from the prophet Samuel to Israel's first king, and then to Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament. 
It is telling us the story of moving from Samuel as a prophet leading the people to having King David rule over them uh, as the Lord's chosen. But as we've been looking at Samuel, we've been uh, highlighting something of the experiences of David along the way. And you remember that at the end of 1 Samuel, David was fleeing from King Saul. Uh, He had left the land of Israel and he had went to find refuge in the land of Philistia. And ultimately, he had went and found refuge under the king Achish, uh, the king of Gath. And he had won favor with that king uh, to the point where the Philistines ultimately were expecting David uh, to go and to fight with them when they went to fight the people of Israel. But it was only when the commanders of the Philistines saw David uh, that they became uneasy with it and insisted that David would not be allowed to fight. And their reasoning made sense. This would have been a prime opportunity for David to betray them. And he would have been celebrated as a hero in Israel for having done so. And so they would not have David uh, fighting alongside them. They would not allow him even present in the, in the battle itself. And so ultimately, David was sent back uh, to the place where him and his family were settled in Ziklag. But when they went back to Ziklag, you remember that their families had been abducted. Uh, There were people that had come and had stolen away uh, their goods. And so David had to go in pursuit uh, of those raiders. He had to go in to recover what had been lost. And you remember that everything that had been lost, they were able to recover. But all of that insists and explains to us that David did not participate in this great battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. But not only did David not participate in the battle, he didn't even know what the outcome was. But as we come here to 2 Samuel, uh, we are given the news of uh, Saul's death. We are given the uh, report that comes to David that the king of Israel has died. And this evening we want to look at how uh, because the Lord has made known his anointed servant, we are to honor the Lord's chosen. And we want to think about these verses this evening in terms of the testimony that is given about Saul's death and then the verdict that is given on the basis of Saul's death. First, we have uh, the testimony that is given. And as we're coming to this passage this evening, uh, it is good to bear in mind that originally First and Second Samuel were one book, uh, that they were, uh, they're telling a united story. And so we are reading a continuation of what was being recorded just prior. The story uh, smoothly carries on. But as we come to it, we're told that this man, uh, in verse 2, on the third day, uh, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, and his clothes were torn, and dirt was on his head. That is the visible signs of expressing grief in the ancient world, much like people would do even today uh, if there's a funeral. Uh, People might wear uh, black clothing, uh, even in the recent past, as a way of expressing visibly their grief about what has taken place. And here this man comes approaching David, expressing his grief. He has dirt on his head, he has uh, torn his clothes, and as he comes uh, to David, uh, he uh, fell on his face to pay homage, and and David says to him, where do you come from? And he explains, I have come from the camp of Israel. And David asks him, how did it go? And now he is going to hear about Saul's death. 
when uh, he uh, comes to tell him, uh, he tells him uh, that uh, not only was there a great defeat, many have died, but even Saul and Jonathan are dead as well. Which David needs to know, how is it that this man knows that? This is something that can't go on rumor. This is something that he needs to know whether or not it's true. And so he asks the man, how do you know that Saul is dead? And he goes on to explain to him uh, his testimony. And as I just mentioned, it's good to bear in mind the fact that First and Second Samuel are really a united book. And that's helpful because when we come to this account here, you'll notice that the Amalekite gives his testimony about how Saul died. But you remember what it told us in, at the end of 1 Samuel, that the chapters just prior to this record for us how Saul died. You remember that Saul was badly wounded. You remember that he did turn to his sword bearer and he asked him to thrust him through. He was asking his sword bearer to kill him off. And it tells us that his sword bearer would not do it because he feared greatly. So the sword bearer would not carry out Saul's request. And as a result, Saul turned his sword on himself and fell on it and died. And it tells us there in verse 5 of chapter 31 that when the sword bearer saw that Saul was dead, then the sword bearer killed himself as well. But now as we come to this chapter, this man who comes from the camp of Israel, you'll notice that he has a slightly different testimony about Saul's death. And here he comes telling him that uh, ultimately Saul was in anguish, uh, that his pain was so great and the man saw that saw, there was no way Saul was going to recover. And because Saul asked him to kill him, that he went and did what he uh, saw as a merciful kill and ended Saul's life. Everything he says here is trying to explain and to rationalize why he would have done what he was doing. But we're still left asking the question, those are two different reports. How are we to reconcile or what are we to make sense of in these two different reports? Who killed Saul? Did Saul kill Saul? Or did this man here uh, ultimately end Saul's life? Or is there some way in which they both are true? We have to look at these two events that are recorded side by side, these two testimonies, on the basis of what has just been said. The inspired account of what had happened to Saul has been just given to us in the previous chapter. Saul fell on his own sword, and it says explicitly there in the account that Saul was dead. And now we are to look at this uh, Amalekite's testimony on that basis. What we know to be true about Saul, what we know to be true about his death. And we're to evaluate this Amalekite's testimony in light of that understanding. And so we're not to necessarily uh, go along with everything that is being said here, but rather to see that there are problems even in his testimony. And that seems to be part of even what David himself is suspicious of. For instance, there is the problem about his whereabouts. Notice that when he tells David how he knows that Saul is dead, he says, it just so happened that I was on Mount Gilboa in verse 6. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. That's a very vague explanation about his whereabouts. He's not explaining to us why he was there. 
Was he part of Saul's army? Or was he a scavenger? Why is he there in Saul's army uh, if he's not recognized as being part of Saul's troops? There's no real explanation about why his presence is there on Mount Gilboa, which raises a flag about his testimony. But an even greater problem with his testimony comes what, what he says next. You notice that he says there that when he came to Mount Gilboa, he found Saul leaning on his spear. Uh, so he's already in a weak state. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were closing in on him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, here I am. And he said, who are you? And I said, I am an Amalekite. So the way that the Amalekite is testifying about Saul's death, Saul was by himself. And he was in great anguish in the point that he, he was in the process of great pain. He was dizzy, as it were. He didn't have his whereabouts anymore. And he is calling out to this Amalekite, this man who he doesn't know, asking a, a passerby uh, to finish him off. What's the problem with that testimony? One, tes one problem with it is, is that kings on the battlefield don't stand alone. David is a military uh, warrior. And he would have been well familiar with the tactics of the Israeli army. He would know that at all costs, you protect your king. And it would, be, it would be suspicious to think of a king being all by himself in the middle of a battle. And so it raises the question, why is this man, who had his whereabouts is not explained why he's there, saying that he came upon the king and the king has no one around him, and the king is now calling on this passerby to come and to do his bidding. This man who he doesn't even know. So again, there is another flag in this man's testimony. Why is the king by himself? Why is there no one around the king? And why would the king call on a stranger? But then thirdly, there is also the question about the motive. Why is the man who has allegedly killed the king coming to tell David that he has done that? Why is the man who has killed the king just made a three-day journey down to Ziklag to bring the crown of Israel to David unless he thinks that there's going to be some benefit in doing that? In other words, he is coming to David and saying, really, your kingship, you can thank me for becoming king. You wouldn't be king, David, if it wasn't for what I did. I took the merciful step of ending Saul's life. I'm the one who brought you the report. I'm the one who brought the crown to you. I helped with this transition. And so there is a question about what is this man's motive in making that three-day journey? Later on in chapter 4, David reflects on this incident. And David says, when the man came to him, he thought he was bringing me good news. So the man himself seemed to be thinking that what he was doing was ultimately something good. And that it was something that David would celebrate when he brought him the crown. So there's, there's problems or questions we would raise with the man's testimony uh, as he gives it. But all of this uh, then raises the question of the reliability of what he is saying. Whether this man was in Saul's army or whether he was a scavenger. What seems to be likely is, is that this man uh, saw an opportunity and he took advantage of it. He saw a dead king and he took the crown, knowing that he could seize that opportunity for his own benefit. If David thinks 
that I have helped in some way, then it will benefit me if I tell them that I have killed the king. So according to this Amalekite's testimony, David uh, has the Amalekite to thank for the death of Saul. And he takes the crown and the armlet to prove that Saul indeed is dead. So he figured that if he presented the crown uh, to David and claimed that he had a part in it, it would benefit him as well. And isn't that the reason why any of us do uh, wrong things? The reason why we sin is because we think of the perceived benefits. We think that it's going to help us if we do them. Uh, If I do this, it'll make me happier. If I do this, it'll make me more secure. We think about what is offered to us by doing it instead of living according to what we know to be right in the sight of God. Instead of living in the fear of what God has said, instead we think about what this will give me if I do it. And that seems to be where this sojourner, this Amalekite, is going at it. He's thinking about, if I present this to David, it will go well with me. If I say that I had a part in Saul's death, I will benefit from it myself. And so uh, all of this is highlighting his focus and his perspective. So there's the record of his testimony. He says that he killed Saul, and he did it as a merciful thing, but it was obviously a necessary thing. He rationalizes it, that Saul wasn't going to survive. The army was coming in on them, that Saul was already uh, in great anguish, and Saul even asked for it. And so for all of these reasons, he's saying that what he did was good, and ultimately it makes David king. But there's the reaction uh, to what he says. And when David and his men heard that Saul and Jonathan uh, were dead, uh, as well as uh, many Israelites, they tore their clothes uh, and they fasted and they mourned. So they showed uh, a great sorrow over this report, uh, which may or may not have been what uh, the, the Amalekite was expecting in terms of their response. But their mourning did not stop with mourning and fasting. Instead, David's reaction went further than that. In verse 13, he turns to the man and he says, where do you come from? When he asks that question, the wording is not the same as the wording in verse 3. In verse 3, he asked him, where do you come from in terms of where were you just recently? What was your most recent location? When he asks him here in verse 13, where are you from? He's asking him his origin. And there is a reason for the question. And when the man asks or answers him by saying, I am the son of a sojourner, I am an Amalekite. David has uncovered something about this man and his own status. The word sojourner is a technical term. In the Old Testament, we read of it even in the Old Testament reading. A sojourner was someone more or less like a permanent resident uh, in the land of Israel. They were someone who received the benefits of being part of the kingdom of Israel but they also lived under the duties and responsibilities of that kingdom as well, much like a permanent resident does today. If you have a permanent resident here in Canada, they enjoy many benefits about being part of this country, but they also have certain duties. They have to file their income taxes. There's still responsibilities that they're responsible for. And in the same way, a sojourner was someone in the Old Testament who lived in Israel under the protection of the kingdom, 
but was responsible for living according to the law of Israel. So, for instance, in Exodus chapter 12, it says, There shall be one law for the native and one for, uh, and for the sojourner who sojourns among you. In other words, they were still accountable to God's law. And they were informed of God's law. And so when this man says that he is a sojourner, he is admitting to the fact that he is someone who is living under the kingdom of Israel. He is someone who is informed about God's law and God's ways. He would have been someone who knew not only that Saul was the king, but he was someone who knew that as king, he was God's anointed. That God chose him as his servant to govern the people of God. And so that is uncovering something of this man's own understanding. Just as he knew about David's reputation, so he was also informed about God's ways with the kingdom. Just as he was not ignorant about David's fame and that David should be the next king, neither was he ignorant about what Saul was as God's anointed. And so when David asks him that question, where are you from? And he says, I am a sojourner. He has he has confessed to his own knowability, his own understanding of his responsibility of living under God's laws. And so David answers in verse 14 and says, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How is it that you weren't afraid to reach out your hand and to do that? If you reach out your hand into a fire, there are consequences to it. You will feel the effects, the consequences of having a burned hand. You are stretching out your hand against something, and that something, there will be a, an accountability for it. I remember when I was in school, there was a story about a guy who was going around in his car with his buddies, with the windows down, and they had a bat, and they were going around, and they would hit a mailbox. And this man, as they were driving by, they hit the mailbox, and instead it was his own wrist that broke in the consequence. That he was reaching out his hand to strike a mailbox, but in the process it was himself that felt the consequences of it. And here what David is saying is, is that what you did is you struck out your hand. You did something, but you didn't understand the seriousness of what you were doing. You were accountable for what you do because it is before God. You weren't just striking at someone, but you were striking at the Lord's anointed. And how is it that you weren't afraid about what you were doing? You're accountable before God for your actions. And so David here is exposing to this man his own culpability. What you did was an attack on God Almighty. What you did is an attack of rebellion against God's ways. And you're accountable for what you have done. And so here David is really showing the man that he had no fear of God. Based on what he did. You have attacked the Lord's anointed. And what you were focused on was only seizing the opportunity. If I do this. If I claim this. If I bring the crown. I'll benefit. And David here is highlighting to him the seriousness of his action. You've attacked. God's chosen servant. What David would not do when he had multiple opportunities, what Saul's 
sword bearer would not do even when when Saul asked him to do it. This Amalekite foolishly went ahead and did. Because he did not live with a conscious view to what is right in God's sight. And instead he was only thinking about benefits for himself. And so this man's testimony is given. But there's a reaction from David saying this is wrong. What you have done is an attack on God's ways. But there's also a verdict. David not only exposes this man's lack of fear of God and a lack of consideration uh, for what he did in reaching out against the Lord's anointed, but we're told that David then ordered that young man, that Amalekite, to be executed. In verse 16, he said, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you that I have killed the Lord's anointed. You see, Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was chosen by God to lead the people. And so Saul was to be honored as the Lord's chosen. That Amalekite had grossly misunderstood the nature of God's kingdom. He thought it was just about a lust for power. That David would gladly take the crown and carry on. But he was wrong. David was concerned for righteousness. That the kingdom of God is one that is to be governed in righteousness. And that we will be judged before the great king. And so here, the Amalekite misunderstands. He wrongly judges the nature of God's kingdom. And in his attack on the Lord's anointed, he was attacking God himself. That's what Psalm 2 was about. The nations are raging. They rage against even the Lord's anointed. And when they're doing that, their rebellion is against God himself. And so here, David gives his verdict that justice is to come against him. You see, friends, if we're going to understand sin rightly, we have to think about sin not as a bare act. Sin is not just breaking a code. You have to think about sin in relational terms. It is against someone It is an attack of rebellion against God. It is an an attempt to destroy God's purposes. Sin is saying, may your will not be done. It is an attempt to dethrone God. That's why sin is serious. That's why sin will be judged. Because it is serious. And it is an attack on God himself. And so here what we see is is that this Amalekite's attempt and his, his testimony of having struck down the Lord's anointed is met with judgment. To attack God's anointed is an attack on God. To attack God's anointed deserves death. And in the same way, our sins, which are an attack on God, are an attack that deserves to be judged. Our sins are serious because they are directed at God himself and attempt to undermine God's rule. The scriptures make it plain that sin is an attack on the Lord and on his anointed one. And the fate of the Amalekite is what each of us deserve for stretching out our hand against the Lord himself. Saul's status was the anointed one, an anointed one. He was one who was chosen by God to govern the people of Israel. That word, 
The Hebrew word for it is the word which we get in the English, Messiah. It means anointed. It's the word when translated into Greek becomes the word Christos, from which we get the English word Christ. Saul was an anointed one. He was was a Messiah. He was a Christ figure. He was not the Savior, but he was God's chosen. And he points forward to the one who would be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. The one who God had chosen to govern his kingdom, to establish righteousness and peace. The one whose reign would be unending and would go from sea to sea. That in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son, born of a woman. And he would establish the kingdom of God. And he would bring peace. And yet when we read in the scriptures, we find that the people of God reached out their hand against him. And they destroyed the Lord's anointed. That Jesus came into this world proclaiming good news, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And yet he was destroyed by the very people he came to save. And when God raised him from the dead, on the day of Pentecost, Peter addressed the people. But he addressed them not by telling them, you're condemned. There's no hope. When Peter addressed the men of Judah on the day of Pentecost, he gave them a message of mercy. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That those who humble themselves will find forgiveness. That there is a message of mercy for those who recognize the Lord's anointed. Like the Amalekite, we all deserve the same verdict as the Amalekite. But God has made known his mercy in and through the Lord Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead. The kingdom of God is one that is of righteousness. That the anointed one, the Lord Jesus, will govern his kingdom in righteousness. He will judge this world in righteousness as it says in the book of Acts, and that God has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. There is a day of judgment. But for those who are guilty of having reached out their hand against the Lord's anointed, if they turn, if they but humble themselves, if they call on the name of the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. And so here is this contrast that this is what we deserve for what we have done to the Lord's anointed. And yet the message of the Bible is is that there is still a message of mercy to those who recognize the Lord's anointed and who seek him for forgiveness of sins. Have you learned from the Amalekite that you cannot benefit in the kingdom of God as long as you're despising the Lord's anointed? Oftentimes we can go through our days not really recognizing the seriousness or the, the importance of things that we're handling. Uh, we can just carry on with our lives. This Amalekite here did not recognize the seriousness of claiming to kill God's chosen. And he was punished for it with death. But do we know the seriousness of how we're handling the Lord's anointed. How you're dealing with the Lord Jesus. Because that's the most important question there is. What are you doing 
with the Messiah? What are you doing with the Lord Jesus yourself? Are you looking to him for forgiveness? Or do you think I can benefit, I can prosper without him? I can, I can live in God's kingdom apart from any concern about what I'm doing with the Lord's anointed. David's question here, why were you not afraid to reach out your hand against the Lord's anointed, should give us all pause. What am I doing with God's anointed? What am I doing with Jesus? Am I trusting in him or am I despising him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us uh, as we think through the experiences of the people of God in the past. Lord, we pray that even as we see these solemn warnings of judgment that fell on this Amalekite, may we not be people uh, who end up despising your anointed ourselves. May we be able to recognize the seriousness of sin, but may we also be people who are convinced of the mercy that is available in Jesus Christ. We thank you then for the resurrection and that in and through the resurrection, he has been made both Lord and Christ. Go before us, we 